Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The Boys on the Tracks. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. Around 4 a.m. on August 23rd, 1987, the crew on board a 75-car, 6,000-ton Union Pacific freight train, more than a mile long and traveling at a rate more than 50 miles per hour, noticed two blurry figures on the tracks as they sped north from Bryant, headed to Little Rock. As they quickly got closer, engineer Stephen Schroyer and others noticed that these figures were human and that they weren't moving, two people lying parallel across the tracks, maybe covered with a tarp, maybe not. Their arms lay by their sides. The train no doubt made sounds and vibrations as it approached, but still, the two people were unmoving and quiet. Schroyer immediately sounded the train's horn and began an emergency stop. In an interview, Schroyer says, From the time that we had placed the train into an emergency position and laid down on the horn, I would estimate about three to five seconds to impact. And that may not sound like a very long period of time, but when you're bearing down a couple of children, it's an eternity, honestly. Like he said, seconds later, the train made impact with the boys, carrying them more than a thousand feet before coming to a complete stop. The boys on the tracks, as they would come to be known, would be one of the biggest unsolved murder cases Arkansas had ever known, linking drug cartels, high-level politicians, and a wide range of officials in its mysterious clutches. Today, we're talking about the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Though the boys' bodies were horribly mangled, they were identified as 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives. Soon, with the help of devastated family and friends, authorities pieced together crucial details of the night before. Kevin and Don were pretty typical Arkansas teenagers of the time and place, best friends and popular students at Bryant High School. They loved hunting, working on their cars, Kevin had a Firebird, Don had a Camaro, and hanging out with their girlfriends. They were both about to start their senior year of high school. And August 22nd, 1987 was a Saturday night, so 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives decided to go out. In true small-town fashion, they hit a local parking lot on the border of Little Rock, Arkansas, where a lot of Bryant high schoolers would go and socialize. Around midnight, they left the parking lot to go to Don's house, where Kevin was planning on spending the night. Kevin waited outside on the porch while Don went in to talk to his dad, Curtis Henry. Curtis recalls that Don came into his bedroom at around 12.15 a.m. and told him that they were going out hunting. Don took his dad's spotlight and his own 22 rifle, and Curtis told them to be careful, and then went to bed. 
At 12.15 a.m., Don and Kevin presumably went to go spotlighting, an illegal form of night hunting, where you shine a bright light into the eyes of an animal, stunning it momentarily and allowing it to be easily shot. They went behind Don's house, backed by a set of railroad tracks that went through the Henry backyard. These were the railroad tracks on the route of the Union Pacific freight train and where their bodies would be hit. The scene was horrific and already incredibly suspect. An EMT at the scene noted that the boy's blood looked darker than it should have, like it lacked oxygen. The same person said the blood was oozing instead of fresh, and the boy's skin was colorless and gray. Perhaps they had been dead for some time before their bodies were put on the tracks. Dr. Femi Malik, the state medical examiner, sang a different tune. At their autopsies, Malik concluded that the two had smoked as many as 20 marijuana cigarettes, causing them to lay on the tracks in a complete stupor, losing consciousness and not hearing or feeling the approaching train, and then ruled their deaths accidental. Oddly enough, the hospital where the boys' bodies were taken and where the initial examinations were performed had no record of them even being there. As early as Wednesday, August 26, the Arkansas Democrat reported that, quote, the only thing Saline County authorities are sure of in the case is that foul play wasn't involved. Still, testimonials proved otherwise. Two people initially came forward saying they heard gunshots shortly before Don and Kevin were hit by the train. County Sheriff's Office assured the families that tests would be done on Don's gun to see if it had indeed been fired, but those tests never happened. This was the first of many missteps, or something more sinister, depending on who you ask. Authorities lost one of Kevin's feet, which was eventually discovered by a member of the Henry family, along with parts of Don's gun and other personal belongings that had of course been overlooked at the scene. Also, nobody, not the police or the families, found a tarp by the tracks. As you might imagine, all of this deeply unsettled the grieving Ives and Henry families. Even more sad and ironic, Larry Ives, Kevin's father, had recently worked for the railroad, and had he still been working at Union Pacific, he likely would have been on the exact route that struck his own son. Ives hired a private investigator, but they were repeatedly stopped by the St. Lane County Sheriff's Department, who was handling the case, and was sure, very, very sure, that it was simply a marijuana-induced accident. The case was formally closed. Larry Ives was pissed. He said, quote, Well, I couldn't believe that Kevin was knocked out on marijuana or into any kind of heavy drugs. We'd never seen him in a state that he even act like he was spaced out, or however you want to phrase it. Linda Ives was also pissed. She publicly criticized Saline County Sheriff James H. Steed Jr., who kept saying that the whole thing was an accident. In February of 1988, randomly, an attorney named Dan Harmon independently approached the families, offering to help them by making a deal with Steed. The deal was this. If the Ives and Henry families would stop criticizing Steed, the sheriff's department would look further into the case. The Ives did not like that and didn't take the bait. About six months later, the Henry family received Don's belongings from the medical examiner's office. Don's stepmom was shocked when she found a piece of evidence that literally everyone had overlooked— a bag of weed, about 1.9 grams, in the pocket of Don's jeans. Of course, this created far more questions than answers, let alone closure. The Ives family then hired Dr. James Garriott of San Antonio, who, in March of 1988, did his own investigation. The results of this investigation was reported during a joint press conference by the Ives and Henry families. They announced two things based on Garriott's findings— one, that it was highly unlikely that any amount of THC in the boys' systems would have had the strange effects that Malik alleged. Two, that the only reliable test for the presence of drugs in the boys' systems was mass spectrometry, and that test had not been performed. The families hoped that the investigation would be reopened by them during their own work in speaking out, and they were right. 
The next day, the case was officially reopened. Newly assigned prosecutor Richard Garrett had the boys' bodies exhumed for second autopsies around the same time that Dan Harmon was appointed by a circuit judge to head the county grand jury investigation as a special prosecutor. The second autopsies were performed by Georgia medical examiner Dr. Joseph Burton. Dr. Burton found that Don and Kevin had minimal marijuana in their systems, the equivalent of one joint between the two of them, not a staggering 20. He also realized something that would change everything about the case. Don had been stabbed in the back, and Kevin had suffered a crushing blow to his skull. These injuries did not come from the impact of a train. In his opinion, one of the boys was already dead, and one was unconscious at the time that they were hit. Then there was a third autopsy. The pathologist who did that took a closer look at Don's clothing. Then there was a third autopsy. The pathologist who took that took a closer look at Don's clothing and at Kevin's body, finding similar information as Dr. Burton with a different spin. While he found evidence of stab wounds on the shirt Don wore that night, he noted that the corresponding wounds by the train didn't fit the shirt, and his conclusion was that the shirt was likely off of Don's body at the time of his death. With Kevin, he found the bludgeoning wound to the left side of his head was similar to the butt of Don's twenty-two rifle. This information was groundbreaking and would open up a Pandora's box of violence and suspicion for the next 30 years. But before that, let's take a break. Believe it or not, I like to start my day with a little bit of positivity. And I get a little help from the podcast Wake Me Up. Wake Me Up is a guided morning routine podcast to help you start your day in a positive way. When you first wake up, your mind is in a nearly blank state. What you feed to it early on in the day will affect your mood, productivity, and mindset for the rest of the day. Wake Me Up will help you take advantage of that with a blend of mindfulness, yoga, and motivation. Topics include personal growth, inspiration, meditation, mindfulness, and motivation. So start your day right and check out the Wake Me Up podcast. Just search Wake Me Up in your favorite podcast player or go to wakemeuppodcast.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. It's check-in time. That's right. Well, what, what time it is. Do you? No, you don't take off that buckle. Oh. Just be unsafe during check-in time? Yeah. Why not? I'm nervous. We're all buckled up. Most of the time, now's the time you can just unbuckle unless you're driving Well, and listening to this, which... Check your phone then. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> just keep your keep your peepers on the road. Mm, okay. But keep our voices in your ears. But also, if a, a car honks, pay attention to that. Hmm. Oh, great. Rules rules for life and other the road. That, other than that, <laughs> great, there good, are good. no rules. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We want to say hello to anyone who's listening. Anyone who supports the podcast, spreads the good word. Mm-hmm. Tell a friend. If you don't have a friend, I know how you feel. 
Oh. <laughs> oh. That- <laughs> it was just like, cross enemy lines and tell someone else about this podcast. Oh, yeah, tell an enemy. Oh, you want to get them back? Yeah. Yeah, listen really, to this. Really stick it to them with this pod. Yeah, get them. We don't care as long as there's somebody's listening. <laughs> no, we literally are not discriminatory whatsoever in listenership. Keep your friends far and your enemies closer. Patreon those enemies. <laughs> Hit them with the Patreon link. Patreon.com slash ghost town pod. And they're like, what do I get? Well, that's debatable. Yeah. But you get early access, no chit chat, bonus episodes, no ads. I know somebody once said the no chit chat thing was gross, but it's really no ads or advertising that you don't want to listen to. (laughs) You're still on that. Patreon.com slash ghost town pod. And if you're a member of the ghost town government. That's right. Speaking of no rules, Mm. but rules. Mm. We want to say hello to our mayors. Mm-hmm. David Bull. Hello. Ashley Matson. Hello. Kat Joselle. Hello. James Harrington. Hello. Dara Rosenzweig. Hello. Kat Joselle actually messaged, and I think she liked being on bass. She, I made her bass player in one of the episodes. Oh, I, good. Yeah, and she liked it. We she should was, assign was, more fun things to people. Yeah. That sounds fun to me. Oh, we should assign dictators next time. (laughs) Great, great. Is that fun? We'll have no more Patreon subscribers. That'll be great. No, the good ones. The good dictators. Oh, the good good ones. Okay. If you maybe could just revisit history a little bit and have an open mind. Uh, It's on me. It's on me. I apologize. But you know who's not going to be assigned a dictatorship because her rule is beautiful. And just. Very just. Don't cross her. Don't. You better not. You better not. Mm -hmm. We haven't found out what happens if you do cross her. No, we wouldn't dare. Avian Noble. Noble. We got a couple of piping hot, red hot out of the oven Apple Podcast reviews. That sounds great to me. Who's hungry? Um, Always. But not from probably Apple Podcast reviews. No. Are they from my dad? <laughs> I Maybe. I don't know. If one of them's from your dad, it, you got a weird relationship with your dad. Uh-oh. I wish I had a son. One star. Is that from your dad? <laughs> <laughs> this one's cool podcast. Five stars from Ordep22. The hosts are funny and the topic's are interesting. That's all I need. Love the banter. Five stars. Rebecca's voice is so hot. Five stars. Love the show. Oh my god. I'm not Rebecca's dad. <laughs> in in the USA? It is in the USA. All right. All that, right. That was from NPT Delion. That's funny. I I don't like listening to my voice, so I'm glad somebody does. Love the show. Five stars. So I stumbled upon this show and was hooked with the first show I listened to. I'm currently backtracking and binging every episode. Keep up the good work and just know that you've made a devout listener of me. Don't change a thing with much love from the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. It's Big Hoss 13 in the U.S. and A. I'm glad they're going from current episodes backwards. That's the best way to do it. Yeah. You got to get the tight current version of this and then you'll have a lot more leniency for the backlogs. Yeah. In my humble opinion. You want to go back to the beginning? You know how some shows were like, I remember when it started, it was good. Or like when a band, like their first <laughs> albums were like really good. Now they're kind of like whatever. Mm. We're the opposite. But except our new stuff isn't good either. It's just more listenable. <laughs> God. It's just easier to listen <laughs> to. Jesus. We're, we're getting to a level of self-deprecation that I'm, I'm like, oof. Let's get out of podcast reviews. Still in the USA. And get back to Arkansas. Where on February 26th, 1988... The deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives were officially classified by a grand jury as homicides. But there were still elements that just didn't make sense. For one, the green tarp. Garrett questioned the green tarp that the train crew had seen and reported. 
the tarp had completely disappeared and law enforcement denied ever seeing it at all. Another strange lead had also surfaced. It was reported by multiple people that in the week before Don and Kevin were killed, a man in military fatigues was seen near the train tracks, acting suspiciously. The police were called, and when a responding officer stopped to question him, the man opened fire and fled. The officer, who had taken cover in his vehicle, was not struck, but a search immediately following produced nothing. The suspect was never found and never identified. And then rumors started to circulate. Some thought, including Kevin Ives' mother, that the murders of Don and Kevin were somehow tied to drug trafficking. Nearby Mena, Arkansas, about 160 miles west, was a hub for cocaine dealers led by a man named Barry Seal, who had been gunrunning and smuggling cocaine for the Medellin cartel out of Colombia and into the U.S. since 1981. A pilot by trade, Seal used low-flying planes to airdrop drug packages in remote areas of Louisiana, where his ground team picked them up. Seal had 12 planes that made frequent drops, and to keep under the radar, Seal had just moved to nearby Mena, Arkansas. As another note, soon after this move, Seal would become a covert CIA operative against the Medellin cartel and was murdered in February of 1986. But the drug trafficking continued, with perhaps the involvement of then-Governor Bill Clinton. Some thought that Kevin and Don may have unintentionally stumbled upon a drug drop and were killed as a result. Although the grand jury had announced that the boys' deaths may have been related to drug trafficking, Sheriff Steed refused any funds that might have aided in the investigation. It was also discovered that Steed lied about where he had sent Don and Kevin's clothing for examination. Rather than sending these items to the FBI like he had said he would, he actually sent them to the Arkansas State Crime Lab. Perhaps, but not surprisingly, Steed was not re-elected to his sheriff's position following his involvement in this case. Then there was the murder of Keith McCaskill. McCaskill was a known drug user and dealer and had been suspected of being at the train tracks when Kevin Ives and Don Henry were killed. He was also a friend and alleged informant of an attorney named Dan Harmon. On November 10, 1988, only two days after Steed lost his re-election bid, 43-year-old Keith McCaskill was stabbed 113 times and killed. His body was found in his home's garage, wrapped in a shower curtain and covered in blood. Before his murder, McCaskill had said he thought he was being followed, and he prepared his own funeral arrangements, just in case. In August of 1989, Ronald Shane Smith, a 19-year-old neighbor of McCaskill's, was sentenced to 10 years for McCaskill's murder. Smith later said that he had been at McCaskill's home to pay for his items he had purchased from him, including, inexplicably, a silver tray for his mother, when three men in clown masks, or five men dressed in black, depending on the interview, burst into McCaskill's home with knives and a gun. Smith says he was held at gunpoint by one of the men while the other two killed McCaskill. Then, Smith says, he was ordered to stab McCaskill while one of the men took a Polaroid, blackmailing him into taking the blame for the murder. Roughly six months after Don and Kevin were killed, a man named Keith Coney was killed in a motorcycle accident. The official story was that Coney had been speeding and ran his bike into the back of a semi. But witnesses claimed that he was being chased and swerved into a truck. His injuries also didn't correspond to a run-of-the-mill accident. According to those at the scene of the crime, they said that his throat appeared to be slashed. An autopsy was not done. Right before his death, Keith, who was an acquaintance of both Don Henry and Kevin Ives, told his father that he had been out with Kevin and Don the night they died, and the trio were approached by a police vehicle with two officers inside. Keith claimed to have fled on his motorcycle, but either saw or maybe just believed that Kevin and Don were killed by these officers that night. January 22, 1989, a friend of Keith Coney, 26-year-old Greg Collins, who had gone hunting hours before and who had also been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury about the deaths of Kevin and Don, was found in the woods of Prescott, Arkansas, dead. 
He had three shotgun wounds, two in his chest and one in his face. It was said Prosecutor Garrett and Dan Harmon had questioned Collins shortly before his murder. Our favorite medical examiner, Femi Malik, ruled Collins' death as a suicide. And then more violent and bizarre deaths happened of people who had been drug distributors and were somehow linked to Don Henry and Kevin Ives, now known simply as the Boys on the Tracks. In March of 1989, Daniel Booney Bearden, a drug distributor who had been subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury in the case, vanished. The days before August 22, 1987, Don Henry had purchased a small amount of weed from 21-year-old drug dealer Jeffrey Rhodes. In April of 1989, Rhodes told his parents that he was afraid, that he needed to get out of Arkansas because he knew way too much about Keith McCaskill and, quote, the boys on the tracks. A week later, his body was found in a trash dumpster in Benton, Arkansas. He was shot in the head and mutilated right before his body had been set on fire. In July of 1989, Richard Winters, who at one point was a suspect in the murders of Kevin and Don, was killed by a shotgun blast to his face. Clearly, 1989 was a bad year for anyone affiliated with this case. A man named James Millam, reportedly a witness to the Mina drug operation and to the murders of Kevin and Don, was found decapitated in his home with his head missing. Medical examiner Malik claimed the death to be of natural causes brought on by an ulcer. He also claimed that Millam's small dog had eaten his owner's head. When Millam's head was later found in a trash can blocks away, Malik then said he thought that the dog had regurgitated the head. In June of 1990, Jordan Kettleson, rumored to have information on the boys on the tracks, was found with a shotgun blast to his head in the front seat of his pickup truck. His body was cremated before an autopsy could be performed, and no police investigation took place. In June of 1995, grand jury witness Mike Samples was shot to death. He was allegedly involved in retrieving drugs dropped from airplanes. A witness who called himself Jerry said that on the night of August 22, 1987, he was sitting in a convenience store parking lot and saw three teenage boys with one on a motorcycle hanging out by the store and smoking pot. According to Jerry, a police car rolled up, the boy on the motorcycle took off, and the two officers, quote, beat the shit out of the two remaining boys before throwing them into the cop car. When Jerry went to the authorities with his tip, he was jailed for 90 days for having an outstanding child support warrant. After his release, he skipped town. Two police officers were specifically named as suspects by Jerry and others who claimed similar eyewitness accounts. I couldn't find their names, but according to a very comprehensive Medium article by Lori Johnston, where I got a lot of these smaller, creepier details, they both sued for defamation and both lost. One of the officers later went to prison on drug-related charges, and the other eventually became a police chief and head of a drug agency. On September 10, 1991, Dr. Femi Malik resigned as head Arkansas medical examiner. Before his resignation, it came out that when the grand jury overruled his findings in the Ives-Henry case, then-Governor Bill Clinton hired two pathologists to review his findings. These pathologists, unlike the doctors hired by Prosecutor Garrett, gave Malik high marks and suggested that he be given a 41.5% raise, which he received. Malik, as it turned out, had helped Bill Clinton's mom, a nurse anesthesiologist, get out of a malpractice suit. Malik died in 2018 in Florida after working for the health department as a consultant on sexually transmitted diseases. Attorney Dan Harmon, the guy who had initially reached out to the Ives and Henry families to broker assistance, ran into some pretty serious trouble himself. As early as March of 1990, he was linked to illegal drug activity. While in the process of dodging several counts of income tax evasion, President George Bush nominated Harmon for federal judge. He didn't get the nom as it was withdrawn when Clinton won presidency. But three years later, Harmon was promoted to Saline County prosecutor, even though his then-wife was caught out of town with cocaine packages from the district's evidence locker. 
1996 really caught up to the prosecutor, though. He resigned as part of a plea deal he took after beating up a reporter from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette who had asked him simply for a comment. In April of 1997, a federal grand jury indicted Harmon with racketeering, dealing in cocaine, manufacture of methamphetamine, extortion, witness tampering, and retaliating against an informant. After he was put away, more disturbing information came out. Some 900 criminal cases in Saline County had been dropped because of Dan Harmon. Finally, he was disbarred, and in 2006, he was released from prison after assisting prosecutors in a murder conspiracy case. But in 2008, Harmon was again on the Saline County payroll, organizing files for a circuit clerk. Still, in February 2010, he was charged for selling morphine and hydrocodone near a school. And he was acquitted. In 2016, Linda Ives filed a civil suit citing a Freedom of Information Act violation against multiple agencies, including the CIA, the FBI, and the Bryant Police Department for covering up the reason for her son's death. In November of 2017, a federal judge ordered three defendants in the suit, the Executive Office of the U.S. Attorneys, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and the Department of Homeland Security to turn over documents for private review. The suit was ultimately dismissed in 2019. Thirty years later, a strange testimonial surfaced in the Ives-Henry murder. In February of 2018, WWE wrestler Billy Jack Haynes released a video in which he claimed that he witnessed the murders of Kevin Ives and Don Henry when he was a private security guard during a drug trafficking drop. The former wrestler explained that in the 80s, he was working as a drug trafficker and was introduced to a, quote, politician drug dealer from Arkansas. Haynes then alleges that this unnamed politician asked him to kill David Kennedy, the son of Robert F. Kennedy, in 1984. He went on to say that, quote, In August of 1987, I was contacted by the Arkansas criminal politician and was asked if I would provide muscle at an Arkansas drug stop. The criminal politician suspected that some drug money drops were being stolen. Haynes named six others that were at the scene, including three law enforcement officers, two attorneys or politicians, and a bouncer from a local club. He said that the corruption in Arkansas was systemic and reached very high levels in law enforcement and politics in the area. To this day, the case of the boys on the tracks remains unsolved. Barry Seal is portrayed by Tom Cruise in the movie American Made. Yeah. I saw the movie without really know, knowing much about the backstory. Mm-hmm. But that's still, in case you saw the movie American Made in 2017. Also, probably could do a whole episode on him, to be honest. I like when the first thing is... Something went wrong, marijuana. Mm -hmm. And this is in 1987, and you want to be like, well, that was the 80s. People still do that now. Were they, yeah. were they, hooked, on, were they hooked on cannabis? Were they toked out? Were they reef, re reefed out? And Truly. it's that thing where you can just absolve things and make things easier. Whether there's foul play or not, oh, it was probably so much marijuana, mm -hmm. such an intense... It's not the alcohol. No. Because alcohol, there's like American flags near it. You exactly. Know? Beer. Crack open a beer. It's the demonization of cannabis, marijuana, has been a huge part of our history and a huge part of like why there's- Especially these... in the 1980s. Oh, yeah. The war on drugs and Absolutely. dare and, and all As that. As they're sitting on a mountain of cocaine, demonizing marijuana, which is very funny because it's, oh, a hotbed for other horrible drugs that could kill you? Marijuana. That's got to be it. It would have to be so much marijuana and nothing else. Such an insane amount of marijuana to be like, oh, we got hit by a train because we're on so much marijuana. When it's illegal and it's taboo to probably in ingest that amount in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a relatively short amount of time for that to happen is highly unlikely. We know that you are like this cog in this bigger plan to cover up this politics drug correspondence and like mutual mutually benefit 
mutually beneficial arrangement, but at least be creative in it. What do you think the what do you think Occam's razor tells us about this? Oh, I think first I think it's hard to say because there's lots of different components, but I think they were either saw something they should I don't think that they were trying to circumvent a drug deal. That doesn't really sound like teenage shit. But I think they probably saw something they weren't supposed to see in this tiny corrupt town where everyone was working for the fucking drug cartels or benefiting from drug usage and sales, saw something that they shouldn't have seen, got beat up by cops who were in the pocket of the government, and later killed because it's, well, maybe they're dangerous. And, and made it look tracks. like a robbery or something like that? Yeah, just put it, I don't even think it looks like a robbery. I think they were put on these tracks to make it look like a train ran them over when they were hunting one night, right? Or they were they were out hunting and then the cops were still patrolling and they were like, oh, these guys that I beat up earlier, let's kill them. They're dangerous. If anything is very telling in this case, which a lot of things are, it's the amount of people who are killed after the fact. Let's, let's take out everyone who could possibly say anything to really keep this case as sealed up as we can. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.